everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse Podcast, Volume 3, Issue 115. You can, of course, play along with Cane and Rinse, Volume 3, and our next five issues are to feature the games The Binding of Isaac, Super Mario 64, Demon's Souls, Manhunt and Manhunt 2, and then a complete change of tone with Parappa the Rapper. I'm Gemma Lamy and Parappa the Rapper 2. Uh, that's Kane and Rince for you right there. <laughs> Head to com for the full schedule, the blog, links to our forum, our merchandise store, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and YouTube. And as ever, please subscribe, review, and rate us on iTunes. Joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue, it's Joshua Garrity. Hello there. Sean O'Brien. Hello, hello. And special guest, Castlevania fanboy, Andy Hamilton of Midnight Resistance. Hello there. Welcome back. It's been uh, about 30-odd issues since mm. we last had you on. It was issue 84 Yes, when we, uh, we waxed lyrical uh, on Symphony of the Night uh, and the other 2D Castlevanias to a lesser extent. And uh, a fine time was had by all on that show, even though it was uh, a unanimous uh, loving, went down very well. For listeners' sake, the way you can tell us apart is the fact that we all say Castlevania slightly differently. I'm the only person who says Castlevania, I think, in this in this crew. We have we have one Castlevania, yep. a Castlevania, and, and I don't know what Josh does. Where, Josh, where is your accent from? Um, I'm just... Well, I'm from Suffolk, so... But my accent's yeah. not really Suffolk, so... No. I'm from nowhere. I'm just default oh. English. <laughs> okay. I reckon you say Castlevania, though, as in Newcastle. Uh, Castlevania, yeah. 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 <laughs> just, just checking. Okay. Um, now, we're, we're going to do this uh, sort of chronologically. Now, we always said, as we did with the Symphony of the Night show, this, this, this podcast is mainly about Lords of Shadow, and it was timed to coincide with the release of Lords of Shadow 2. It'll be slightly ahead of that. But the demo is out now on, uh, on PS3, Xbox 360, and as of today at the time of recording, Steam. Um, so no waiting three years for the Ultimate Edition on PC this time. That's good news. Um, but we're going to go back, we're going to do this chronologically, and we're going to go back to a time in 1998 when many developers were struggling to move their wares from the 2D plane into the difficult, awkward, challenging world of polygon-based 3D. And Castlevania, after just almost limitless success on 16 and 8-bit formats, um, were... Well, you know how sometimes you go back to a game now from that era, the late 90s, and it's like, yeah, time has passed and control systems and cameras feel a bit awkward. Well, Castlevania 64, not that it was called that, uh, kind of felt like that at the time. Um, In a world that was uh, post-Ocarina of Time, uh, I remember I bought Castlevania on the N64. It had mixed to moderate reviews, um, some positive, some less so. Uh, but it was a difficult game to play even then. Now, Andy Hamilton. Yes. Uh, I imagine, given your <laughs> Castlevania history, you were all over this. Yes, um, this was probably the first one that, um, like, uh, I, I was re- I followed all the build up. Um, as we mentioned on the previous show, uh, Symphony of the Night, it sort of crept up on me. I didn't know anything about it until the magazines were raving about it, saying this is going to be the best thing ever, and. Did, it is the best thing ever, but so that I'd played Castlevanias before. That got me into the series. This was the first new one to come out mm. since I yeah. was a fan. So, needless to say, I got it straight away. And you know, um, when you were a kid, and well, 
I was not so much a kid actually, I was about 15 years old, but um, I, I was at a time where I just I just had enough money to buy games for myself and plenty of mm. time, but it wasn't like now where a new game comes out and I'll just buy it for the sake of buying it, you know, Steam has ruined us. But um, So I think I treasured it a lot more than it deserved, <laughs> right. um, because it, it was a new Castlevania game and it had the music that I'd known, you know, come to love and it had, you know, characters and, you know, Belmont, the, you know, the, possibly. Yeah, the, the series tropes that that I wanted from a Castlevania game. And um, so I think I was willing to give it a lot of slack. Um, and by a lot of slack, I mean <laughs> about as much slack as you could probably give a game. Um, mm. The interesting part about it is I played it before this podcast. I've played this through again. Oh, fantastic. Last, yeah, well done, you. All the way to the end. And, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, the... The camera is inexcusable. You've got no <laughs> con- you've, you've got no control over it, and it when you start fighting, it basically puts it into battle mode, which kind of gives it like a forty-five degree angle. So mm. I guess you can see slightly behind you in the third-person view. Sounds like a clever idea. Doesn't work at all. Like it doesn't bring anything to take. You're better off just running around and whipping. Um, yeah. And I think the place where they went wrong is. Castlevania 64 is quite literally one of the 2D Castlevanias from the NES made in 3D. Mm. It has a very basic combat system where you jump and you attack. There's no dodge like you expect in a 3D action game. It plays like one of the 2D games. It plays a lot like Simon's Quest. So you've got a bit of exploration to it, but ultimately it it, it <laughs> they have taken their 2D formula and stuck it into a 3D game engine and it just it it doesn't fit um, it doesn't have any of the things that you kind of require from a 3D action game to make it playable <laughs> yeah and of course you're missing all that delicious uh, pixel sprite of art. course yeah uh, you've got these very murky um, low poly by today's standards but even then I don't remember it looking you know it looked passable in 1998-99 but it wasn't it wasn't the best looking game and, and from Konami's amazing 2D legacy it, it seemed a bit of a backwards step His flaming th- skeleton motorcycles were a thing in this game they were yeah I'm wearing little, um, little army helmets as they drove around here's the thing Although, <laughs> although it, it's um, it's a difficult game to defend uh, because it 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 does all the things that an action game has to get right wrong. It, mm. it, the, without fail, there's a, like you take a checklist. But I would be lying if I said I didn't enjoy playing it through this last week or so. Fair enough. Um, it has loads of really clever little ideas in it that you know, just little 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 moments that make it a memorable game such as there's a shopkeeper in the game who appears at, like as a scroll on the floor and um, when you click on it it's a kind of out of time period sort of British gentleman um, mm. hold, and he opens up a briefcase and you can buy things from him and um, he usually appears just after boss battles so you absolutely desperately need him buy health and whatnot from him or cures if you get turned into a vampire um, if you look very, very closely, you notice that there's a little tail hanging out from behind his back leg. All right. Um, if you spend too much money at him before you get to the last boss, he unveils himself to be the devil, and you have to, <laughs> you've basically sold your soul to him. Sweet. Over the course of the game, and I, I also him. remember. Oh, sorry. 
That's you right. have to fight him. You have to fight him before you fight the last boss. Uh, I also remember there being quite a neat uh, sort of spin on the uh, Lakitu in Super Mario 64 gag with a, a vampire that you can't see in a mirror. Yes. Uh, something like that. It, it, it had its it had its moments. Um, known in Japan as uh, Akumajo Dracula, a mock Shiroku, uh, Devil Castle Dracula's Apocalypse. Mm. <laughs> uh, of course, it was yet another game to be released under the title Castlevania in in Europe. Uh, but there's more to this story um, because the follow-up is an interesting one because it yeah. contains the entire of this game minus the speech th- for Room. But Castlevania Legacy of Darkness came out for the N64 around it almost exactly a year later. Yeah, it? Um, it came out yeah about a, almost a year to the day later. I think in the States it came out within the same year. Yeah, right. And essentially... Um, you know, they reissued it. It was called Castlevania Legacy of Darkness. And when you start uh, start the game, it's two different characters. Um, one of them, the main one being Cornell, who could turn into a werewolf. That's sort of his thing. And uh, the other one is... Uh, I've totally forgotten her name. Is it... Carrie, or was she in the original one? Uh, sounds about right, but yeah, there's yeah. there's there's two selectable characters in the first 64 game and four in this one. Yeah, but you yeah. unlock the last two, and and they are they are the two characters from Castlevania 64. Yeah, and when you unlock them, you basically unlock Castlevania 64. Yeah, um, slightly different, like a remixed version of it, tweaked uh, and yeah. polished, and yeah, it has the better controls and better camera. You now have some control over the camera using the D-pad um, it's n- still not amazing but at those awkward jumping parts where you didn't have that before it's a godsend and um, it's got slightly different bosses as well when you play through but like it is the same game and um, mm. you could have bought Castlevania 64 like I did and mm. um, when Legacy of Darkness came out at first I thought it was just you know a sequel you know extra mm. characters that's just the way it is when a friend of mine bought it and unlocked Castlevania 64 I must say I was absolutely gutted um, and it looked alright <laughs> as well with the expansion pack but um, I remember oh, it, he had to right. switch it off because it made it unplayable in some sequences some of the boss uh. fights dropped into single digits when you had it on yeah, that was a that was a, a well known feature of the expansion pack: mm. higher resolutions, lower frame rates. Um, yeah, uh, I looked into this. So this was by Konami Kobe uh, Studio, and I, I found out the director. Uh, I don't know if he was also director on the previous N sixty four one. You would assume so, but maybe not. Anyway, Yuji Shibata uh, also had previously worked on Tiny Toon Adventures for the NES, but also has credits in Final Fantasy VIII and Kirby's Epic Yarn. Good luck. There you go. Yeah, good work. Eclectic. Uh, CV um, yeah an odd one um, probably very much of its time but also in I'm sure in its own way important steps into moving Castlevania into 3D which uh, which as we've implied coming up to this podcast has been a sort of a slightly treacherous path in some ways and even even obviously we'll get onto Lords of Shadow um, but even even that you know has its uh, has its pros and cons and its fans and its naysayers so so, as you said, um, there were, I think there was one handheld release between Symphony of the Night and Castlevania 64, but basically those were the main ones. Um, and then we had Legacy of Darkness. But what should have come next in the, uh, in the polygon sphere was the much-anticipated uh, Castlevania Resurrection for the Dreamcast. Yeah. 
So eventually, uh, after I don't I can't remember exactly when it was announced, but fairly early on in the Dreamcast's life, there was possibly even before the Dreamcast's life, um, there was going to be a 3D Castlevania game from Konami. Um, it was eventually cancelled in March 2000. So even a, a fair way ahead of the Dreamcast being cancelled itself, um, this was being put together in uh, America by a Konami team mostly responsible for the bottom of the ninth games the baseball series um, which weren't much of a thing over here um, don't know if they were they were probably slightly bigger in America Sean? I've never even heard of it <laughs> okay uh, yeah fair enough um, so uh, the only member of staff on this who's uh, kind of uh, was well known is uh, an art director called Greg Ord Duyan or Dian, possibly, um, who worked on those bottom of the ninth games, and also has a credit on um, Harmonix's uh, Frequency. Uh, some some sort of artist there. Now, reading an interview with him, as I did earlier, he maintains that there was a lot of negative press about this game that was quite unwarranted, and that actually people have put out bad word about this game for political reasons, and that actually internally they were very pleased with how it was going they felt it was very much up to the standard of dreamcast action games at the time and it was it was going it was set to be you know a cool 3d castlevania yeah i, I heard it was meant to be a launch game wow okay yeah. what a, a us launch game yeah. or a japan launch game um, maybe us but i know i heard it was right. i heard it was meant to be a launch game for the dreamcast right. um there's a there's a lot of footage of it about like it mm. it was fairly well Advanced. shown at the time yeah. and um, I think a lot of that footage is out there um, the soundtrack pretty much is available I think I think you, yeah. I think you could track that down um, yeah. it's, if, you, if you look into it it looks like Castlevania 64 a bit shinier it, it's, it looks like that kind of game ok yeah we'll never know I, I don't think it got to the stage of like the uh, Dreamcast version of Half-Life where you could actually play it and find it and download it I th- I'm not sure the code ever actually emerged in that sense it's uh, it's not a, a lost classic like Star Fox 2 in that way um, it is lost properly lost which brings us on to the PlayStation 2 era um, 2003 in Japan 2004 elsewhere um Castlevania Lament of Innocence. Of course, this was uh, the fourth game, I think, to be simply called Castlevania in yeah. <laughs> in many regions. Uh, and this was uh, produced and written by the main Castlevania man, Igarashi. Uh, but I've never played it. It, it. I remember it being quite well received, but th- there were things about it that I was still so much in love with the idea of the 2D Castlevanias, and I'd been so disappointed with the N64 game but um but I think this this has its fans. Yeah. This is where they got it right. This is where they okay. got the 3D Castlevania right. Um I think I mentioned last time I'm I uh, part of the reason I'm coming on here is not just to talk about Lords of Shadow it's to defend the PS2 Castlevania games <laughs> yeah, from sure. anything that anyone has to say about them. Um this game is Symphony of the Night in in terms of structure and character progression and the way the game works but in a 3D perspective. Uh, the only reason why it's not as good or as well you know, recognised is because, you know in Symphony of the Night you get those really long corridors that you walk through. Yeah. There's a couple of them in the game. And when you're walking through them you've got all this glorious 2D art and you're looking around everywhere and you can see all these little details. You simply don't get that in 3D. And I don't know what it is, maybe it's a subconscious psychological thing, but when you are walking down a really long, straight 3D cor- corridor. It's a bit boring. 
Mm. And that's one of the things that works against it. There are quite a few rooms where the um, fi- the camera's fixed kind of from a central point. So as you walk around it, it, the camera swings to follow you. And that does give it a kind of 2D feel in some areas. And... Um, you know, it means that like jumping around and some of the combat does actually feel a little bit like you are playing in uh, one of the classic Castlevania games. But in terms of it having that thing where you go around, you beat the boss, you get the new ability, you go to another area, and you start slowly but surely chipping away at the castle and moving your way to that 100% or whatever it is in that game, um, it has that. It has that. And... It's a little bit hard. It's a little bit less immediate than the Symphony of the Night because, um, again, it's something to do with the fact it's 3D and action games in, from a 3D perspective have moved on so much since that game. It might be a yeah. little bit harder to get into. But once you've sort of got over, you know, not so much got over, but got used to the um, unique moments that this game, you know, new, unique controls that this game brings to the table, um, you, you're gonna, you, you will find yourself enjoying it for the same reasons you enjoyed Symphony of the Night. Hmm. Sean, you played this one? Yeah, I, I mean, it's been a while, so I don't remember too much about sure. it, but I do uh, have a lot of images kind of stuck in my mind. Like, I remember, like, Medusa in that game is terrifying. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a giant, giant head. Yeah. Yeah. There's, like, snakes coming out of her and everything, and it's just... That, and the, the forgotten one, which was, I think, a, he was a hidden boss at the end, right? That's um, in um, the next one, I think. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I think the forgotten one is the boss in... Yeah, see, I might my memory's all screwed up. But yeah, I do have fond memories of it, even though I don't remember the specifics about the story or anything like that. So, yeah, no, that's fine. We're we're not going into the plots of the many many Castlevanias. We yeah, yeah. we don't have the time or oh, as well. <laughs> yeah, um, but yes, this was ten years ago, so you're you're yeah. <laughs> well within your rights to not remember it crisply. Um, interestingly, uh, it is available this one on PSN mm-hmm. as a PS2 classic in both Japan and America. Oh um, no. You can make, uh, it's quite easy, uh, Euro- uh, European-based listeners, it's quite easy to um, to make yourself a US PSN store account, um, and you can buy uh, credit from various online retailers with instant response, so there are ways of adding US PSN content to your uh, your European PlayStation 3, so th- that is an option. Hmm, I might have to look into that, and it was mm. it was this game, The Forgotten One is, um, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. worth mentioning because... Um, it come up in the uh, yeah. some of the mm-hmm. uh, yeah. um, what's Lord it called the game we're talking about Lords of Shadow Lake um, <laughs> yes DLC but um, the forgotten one you only get to it as the final percentages right of yeah. of um, getting the a hundred percent and it's the game is paced so you, you know you can finish it at about eighty percent but if you then start going around. Um, to get the final parts in getting to sort of 98% you will have found the things that open this door at the bottom of the castle that takes you to the final rooms for the final percentage and the forgotten one is in the basement and it Mm. is a giant colossus sized like rotting minotaur basically (laughs) and it's it's disgusting to look at it's mm-hmm. sort of held together by like meat hooks and um it's a really tough boss as well but it's, yeah, it's it is an excellent surprise for anyone who gets to the very end of the game mm-hmm. 
Do these um do do, do the the controls you know the responsiveness the crispness of the controls make for a fun experience in when fighting tough bosses you know that that can be the problem when going back to old you know this sort of era games sometimes. It's actually I found it actually quite similar to Lords of Shadow that when you hold right. down uh, your block button you sort of brace and then you can dodge left or right while holding the block button. It's just it's a bit stiff. Um, yeah. It's clearly, you know, it hasn't learned from things like God of War and, you know, obviously any of the Platinum titles that have come out since it. But um, mm. it's... It, obviously, the the enemies are designed with this in mind. So, it, but I, I think as a whole, it works. Yeah. And there was a follow-up um, in 2005, 2006 elsewhere, and there was an Xbox port for the West as well. Um, Castlevania Curse of Darkness... Um, directed by Takashi Takeda um, and I think generally slightly less is known of this one um, it's not available on PSN anywhere um, there's no there's been you know maybe if they'd done three in this era there would have been an HD trilogy pack for PS3 oh, but <laughs> yeah don't say um, hasn't like. happened <laughs> um, I really enjoyed Curse of Darkness to the surprise of absolutely no one listening to this show yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it's again similar formula uh, it's you know the Symphony of the Night style Metroidvania, as we hate saying. Um, it's one of them in 3D. Controls are a little bit better. Graphics are a little bit better. And <laughs> it has a really cool system in it called, I think it's the Innocent Devils, which is a bit like the um, Familiars from Symphony of the Night, where you find these little beasts and they follow you around and mm. attack and do different things and some heal you. And you can level them up and then sort of splice them together and create other ones. It's like a sort of really basic Pokemon. And um, you know, you, it's it's a quite a cool little system because uh, we mentioned this in the previous one that all the 2D Metroidvania Castlevania games that have come out from Symphony of the Night, all the GBA ones and all the DS ones, mm. they all have a little twist of their own. And this mm. one's little twist is these little innocent devils, and you can you start with a little goblin imp thing that flies around with you doing basic stuff. And I mean, I believe I ended with this gigantic minotaur made of bones that fired out bits of its body at people and nice. stuff, and it was quite cool. Um, and again, all the Castlevania hallmarks, the music you want to hear, the art style you want, the big walk to the clock tower, and the big set of stairs before you fight the last boss. It's it's it is a great Castlevania game. Again, it, it was a little bit clunky at the time, and because we're all so used to modern action games, you're gonna feel it even more now. But mm. I I I, rec- I recommend it because if you can get past that, it is it's it's gonna tick the same boxes that you got when you were playing the ones that you enjoyed on the GBA and Symphony of the Night. Our correspondent Scrussell says that uh, another thing that Lords of Shadow led me to do was check out other Castlevania games, and I've found that I've had a much better time getting on with the 3D PS2 games than any of the others I've tried. I've finished Lament of Innocence, and I'm currently about halfway through Curse of Darkness. I like them both, but I think I prefer the former at this point. It has a combat system that is actually somewhat similar to that of Lords of Shadow. As you level up, you gain more and more complex and powerful combos. While the game is obviously more clunky and nowhere near as good an action game as Lords of Shadow, I still had a lot of fun with it. I like fighting monsters and exploring the castle, absorbing the atmosphere. The hilariously awful and hammy story was really enjoyable too. I was bursting out laughing with pretty much every cutscene. 
Curse of Darkness, on the other hand, doesn't quite have the same charm. The levels are much larger in that game, meaning that it can lead them to drag on a bit sometimes, and the fact that you have several different types of weapons means that the combat mechanics are fairly shallow. You only have a few simple combos which have the same input no matter what weapon you have. But experimenting with different weapons is fun, as is fighting alongside the innocent devil familiar characters. It's interesting to see them visually change and gain new abilities as they level up alongside you. But both those PS2 games are hardly masterpieces. Yet, I'm still finding myself consistently enjoying them. They're the perfect game to play while listening to a podcast or something. You can just turn your brain off and explore the large levels, killing monsters, gaining new abilities and gear. I think he's nailed it. I think this sums it up quite nicely there with like they're not they're not masterpieces, but if you like the Castlevania thing and mm-hmm. by that I kinda of mean the modern the, the ones that yeah. everyone knows about knows about, um, Symphony of the Night and Lords of Shadow, they are a they're a very good blend of both those games and um well worth checking out. I mean I myself, off the back of this podcast, I'm gonna go get make an American PSN account and get yeah. that sorted out. So <laughs> Very good. Uh, now this one is slightly off the beaten track but I felt we had to mention it um, that goes for a few of the games we're about <laughs> to talk about so uh, the the one Wii game in the Castlevania series I believe apart from uh, the downloadable one which we talked about as 2D one the Adventure Rebirth this was Castlevania Judgment uh, 2008 and 2009 uh, developed for Konami by Aiting who we recently spoke of uh, as raising in our Cave Shoot'em Up show um, but as Aiting, they're best known perhaps in the fighting arena for Bloody Raw, that weird series of uh, transformative uh, a- animals. But also they made uh, legendary GBA action puzzler Kuru Kuru Kururin. And they've also worked with Capcom on Tatsunoku vs. Capcom and Marvel vs. Capcom 3, which I really like both of those games. So um, why is this game so often talked about in such scathing tones? Because it's rubbish, Leon. <laughs> is it? It's awful. Is it? It's really I've never played bad. it. It's, it's dreadful. Um, um, uh, played it long after it came out, um, mm. and mainly through curiosity. Yeah, if it was just bloody raw, or if, if I could dream for a minute, Cap- you know, Capcom versus Tatsunaku, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. but with Castlevania characters, you'd be onto a winner. But it's yes. actually this kind of bizarre three D run around arena battle thing and mm. um, sort of semi third person like I mean I'm being kind if I say it's a bit like a multiplayer Castlevania 64 versus mode like that that's the sort Ow. of camera angle and the control you've got over it but let's not be completely harsh on it um, it looks pretty good um, all the characters are being given uh, a touch of the Dragon Ball Z's and some people might not like that but if you're a big Castlevania nerd like myself, you'll get a kick out of seeing characters like Grant the Nasty in big 3D graphics and stuff. Yep. And the soundtrack is incredible, because it's basically like a greatest hits of the Castlevania series, but all done yeah. by like, you know, on a, on a modern console with like real instruments and a band and stuff. Um, so it sounds great. Um, also, hilariously, the story, they go straight into... Um, jumping dimensions and time stuff, which immediately means that anything with the words Castlevania in can be canon through this game. Um, (laughs) Making everything even more confusing. Apparently it even ties in the pachinko machine. Um, It's it's bad in almost every way, but um, if you like Castlevania music, the soundtrack's an essential thing. 
Uh, yes, it's um, so. It's the Masters of Terrascasi of the Castlevania world. Pretty um, much, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is it, does it shoehorn in Wiimote waggle for fighting, or is it is it more standard control it's, system? It, it has a, it has a touch, but nothing too bad. It's more standard controls, mm. yeah. Uh, just the later that year, or the year after, two thousand nine, uh, Castlevania the Arcade. It's an arcade game, of course. Being in the late two thousands, uh, it is a light gun game because that's all you can put into the arcades these days. Apparently, pretty much, certainly over here, anyway. Um, I've not seen one in the wild. I don't believe I've not played it. I don't even know what you shoot, yeah. but there it is. It's kind of it's meant to be a House of the Dead, you know, a scary. Um, you know, a scary, gothic-y light gun game. Has anyone managed to track one of these down? For my sins, I've never played it. <laughs> no. According to Wikipedia, there was an 18-CD box set containing uh, music from all the many Castlevania titles, um, including the arcade music. Um, I imagine that uh, the Akumajo Dracula Best Music Collections box is highly sought after amongst people like Andy and uh, other Castlevania um, fans, but I have no idea how much that would set you back. Have you looked into tracking that down? Um, I remember seeing it when it was kind of one of those dreams on PlayAsia <laughs> um, just yeah. before it came out, and it was expensive then. Like, uh, yeah. it was a couple of hundred quid like right. before it was rare. But yeah. you, you are right, you know, like, I'd cut off an arm to have it in my room. But, um... Yeah, to own it. I mean, obviously, you could you could source all those tracks uh, legally or illegally or, down, you know, whatever, but to actually own the, the 18-CD box set with all the inlays and whatever would be a very nice thing. Uh, so, final game to talk about uh, completely doesn't fit in with this, but it just ha- we had to crowbar it in um, before we get on to Lords of Shadow, is Castlevania Puzzle. Encore of the Night, uh, iOS and Windows Phone, 2010-2011. Anyone played this? Me. Belter. Great game. Here we go. Castlevania puzzle. (laughs) Right. I've had one iPhone in my life, and it was an iPhone 3G back in the day. And this um, this game kind of came out before the App Store was what it is now. I played loads of this when I was Mm. at work. Um, I used to do a job where I didn't do much, so I filled the time with Castlevania Puzzle. <laughs> it is basically a cross between Columns and yep. Symphony of the Night. So it, you you go around the story of Symphony of the Night, and the freaky part is, if you kind of know the order that you have to go in to get the items, you will know where to go next. So each room is broken up, and you you, you move one room at a time. And in each room, there's like a random chance, like a like a JRPG that you'll get into a battle. And if you're in a battle, you have to quickly play a game of columns and um, beat them, best yeah. them basically. And you know you get magic and power ups and level up. You know level up your strength, which makes more blocks come down at the other side of it. It's a really good game. And um, it would probably have you know back in the glory days of Xbox Live Arcade before they started just mm. releasing rubbish if this was a, if this was the summer of arcade title instead of Harmony yeah, yeah. Despair this probably would have done alright um, it's in it sounds in the mould of Puzzle Quest very similar ch- Challenge of the Warlords yeah. yeah very similar well it's still there I've just checked it's on the app store it's £2.99 um, only has 43 star ratings but I, I assume that's cause, probably because it's been reset at some point but um, there it is you can try that one out 
that pretty much over the two podcasts we have now talked we've mentioned virtually every Castlevania title in in passing at least um, before we now finally move on to the centerpiece of this podcast which is Castlevania Lords of Shadow uh, issuing a spoiler warning at this point because if we do get to uh, later elements of the plot we won't be going through anything in detail but there is there are things that happen which um, I mean some of which have kind of been busted wide open by mm. promotional stuff for the sequel anyway yeah, <laughs> so it's not a huge deal but there's your there's your fair warning anyway going into this game when I first saw it uh, announced I was I was uh, interested thinking you know well I'd missed out on those PS2 games they look quite cool but I'd never got around to playing them um, but Mercury Steam uh, this is a Spanish development team who prior to this had made American McGee Presents Scrapland a zombies game for the Nokia and Clive Barker's Jericho which uh, I've not played but <laughs> I've not heard too many good things about it's a bit of a stinker <laughs> right. So it's one of those where um I guess a bit like Double Helix with Killer Instinct and and uh, things like that you're you're a little bit you're you're concerned based on the track record um even if it's unfair because there may have been mitigating circumstances or a developer finding its feet or whatever. Um I guess more promising and now I'm still interested as to how much Kojima Productions actually had to do with this but it seemed to me that that Konami were using that as leverage to improve the standing of the game mm-hmm. in the eyes of the people anticipating it. It sounds likely. Or they might have needed someone to come in uh, who's an expert at not knowing how to cut stuff out of your game. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> you might be onto something there. Yes, we, we, we'll come back to that. I had not actually made that connection before. Um, but yes... Uh, yeah, according to things I've read, uh, Hideo Kojima had some ideas for this game and helped uh, the team, the, the Mercury Steam team, with certain ideas and polish and as a general kind of overseer, I suppose maybe a bit like Miyamoto does with, with a lot of Nintendo stuff these days. So he's not fully mm-hmm. he's not fully involved, but he, he had a say and he perhaps steered things. Um, yeah. But it's it's not hugely apparent, except in maybe that area that you mentioned there, Sean. <laughs> it's it's very long for a game of its type. Yeah, yeah. It, it, we'll come back to that. Yeah, Kojima's um, just just hearing his name put on there at that time, I was a huge Kojima fan. So that's actually mm. kind of what made me look into this one. I think they realised that. I'm yeah. sh- I'm sure that's what it is. I'm not saying he didn't do anything on it. I'm sure he did, but. Um, you know, as far as I know, Kojima had never worked, or maybe in the early NES days, he'd done something on one of the early Castlevanias. I don't know when he was um, working on MSX Metal Gear. I doubt it. I don't know, but um, it's certainly not. You know, if they if they'd if they'd said it was Igarashi who was <laughs> consulting on it, then that would make a lot more sense. Mm. But I don't know if he had any say in anything to do with Lords of Shadow. Mm. This came out in October 2010 in most of the world, but December in Japan. Um, on the PlayStation 3 and Xbox Xbox 360. The Ultimate Edition finally arrived um, in August 2013. Um, And that was ported by Climax Studios, responsible previously for the port of Diablo on PS1, um, but best known in more recent years for MotoGP Ultimate Racing Technology on the Xbox, and more recently than that for Silent Hill Origins and Shattered Memories. Um, and uh, that's the version I've been playing to get onto uh, finally to our histories with this game. I bought this game once when it came out on PS3. Um, I'd heard that the PS3 version had a more stable frame rate than the 360 version, so I went for that. Bought it when it came out, played the first couple of levels, shelved it, 
distracted, ended up trading it in, hmm. bought it again a few years later for under under a tenner in a supermarket, then heard the Ultimate Edition was coming out, sold it again, then bought the Ultimate Edition, and that's the version I finally played through. And uh, I'm glad I waited, because although it is now three years old, um, the Ultimate Edition is, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a pretty, pretty game anyway, and the PC, PC version running at full spec, 1920 by 1080. It's a nice-looking game, constant 60 frames and all that. Um, Andy, did I uh, assume you were a day-one adopter of this I game? I wasn't. <laughs> um, really? I had a very weird yeah. relationship with this game at first. Um, Interesting. Needless to say... Um, when I was sat up at what, on some ungodly hour watching an E3 stream when they announced this mm. and the words Castlevania and Hideo Kojima came up on screen <laughs> like yeah. it's a miracle I made it through the night all things considered um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah then the Clive Barker's Jericho thing um, yeah you know the, all the all the stuff that came out around it started to show up and there was a demo of it just before release, which I was very excited about, and then um, we'll get onto this in a minute when we start discussing the game. But it's it's taken from the very start, mm. and um, it it's rubbish basically. It play it 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 confirmed all the things I was worried about that they've taken my beloved Castlevania and mm. turned it into a sub God of War action game, <laughs> really gritty, really po faced. Um, killed a couple of werewolves and then did a straightforward section where you were on the back of a horse and was completely turned off by it. However, interesting. However, um former video gamer uh video guy Matt Lees was banging on about it. He was working for OXM at the time and he was quite whenever I sort of voiced my fears he would be the first person to come in and go no it's a cracker you gotta play it you just just power through it did what Matt said just knuckled down got through the sort of first hour a couple of hours and it, it it drew me in it's and you know here we are I think it's a fantastic action game okay okay Josh uh, what about you um so 2010 was an interesting year for me uh, because there were a lot of games that I was anticipating, uh, one of which was God of War 3. Um, I mm. am a huge fan of uh, God of War 1 and 2. I, I genuinely think God of War 2 is one of the best action games out there. So as you can imagine, I was like, oh, yes, God of War 3, yeah, that's going to be a game of the year contender. Um, and then I uh, bought it day one, played it, and I th- I think it's a good game, but ultimately I was disappointed with it. And mm. I kind of completely ignored Castlevania Lords of Shadow, which was released before it, I believe. And everyone was just, like, at the time, people were just going, oh, just wait for God of War 3. God of War 3 will clearly be better. Um, but as the year as the year went on, uh, some uh, voices were saying, "No, actually, I think Lords of Shadow is the sequel to God of War Two that everyone actually wanted." <laughs> um, and you know, it uh, reduced in price dramatically because I, I can't imagine it sold that well. Um, I picked it up for like twelve ninety nine, I believe, on PS three, mm. um, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, um, I'll go into detail later on in the podcast, but I ended up kind of agreeing with those voices. Fair enough. And Sean, 
Um, it's weird because I had a totally opposite reaction to Andy did to the demo. I um, I I'm not a huge super fan of Castlevania, but I liked all the Castlevanias that I played, and obviously Symphony of the Night's like a you know classic. So I was remotely interested in it, and when the demo popped up, um, I gave it a shot, and I was like really impressed with it. I um, I know most people, you guys have said already that the intro of the first three hours is uh, a pretty brutal slog to get through but i don't know for that little chunk of a demo for me like it was gorgeous and i loved the music and it was just i was totally sold on it um so yeah i did end up getting it day one and yeah liked it the uh the the usual um database we have to go by is vg charts for sales um which doesn't have figures for the recent more recent pc version i'm sure they wouldn't know how many steam copies have been downloaded anyway um i know it was recently on sale in a in lead up to this podcast which so often happens um <laughs> it's like we have friends in high places um but according to VG Charts, uh, the game sold across PS3 and Xbox 360 about one and a half million copies worldwide. So certainly enough to warrant the sequel, which is... Uh... Um, it's an interesting point, actually, the um, sales figures. Uh, one of the things, uh, one of the reasons why we're getting a sequel and the reason why um, Konami is so high on the Lords of Shadow games is because, mm. believe it or not, their projected sales figures versus the budget that they'd given for this game right. was actually really low. Okay. And yeah. the that one and a half million across both formats it was apparently massively overperforming <laughs> and like the, the, the higher ups were like, This is brilliant. Like yeah. <laughs> you know, this is exactly what we want. We barely put in anything into this and it's ma- mm. you know, it's massively overperformed. Um so yeah, I mean, obviously, one and a half million isn't you know your Call of Duty numbers, but apparently, according you know when you when compared to what Konami had um, predicted it would sell, it, it was huge. Like they were mm. over the moon with it. That's interesting. Yeah, and of course, uh, we had the game which we briefly spoke of last time, um, the uh, handheld Mirror of Fate, mm. which have, has much more recently been uh, re-released on as a downloadable title for for. 360 and PSM, which I uh, which I think is a great move. Mm. I'd, I'd like to see more go. You know, why not give people uh, you know a different a choice of the way to play? It? I mean, I, I I got the um, the handheld version as as recommended by Andy after we recorded last time. Still in my backlog, of course, but <laughs> there it is. I'm not going to buy it again. Um, but there is an HD you know an HD version out there to play. So um, yeah, fair enough. Cool. So as I say, this is a Spanish team, although um, I know one of the main writers in, on it is uh, this guy called Dave Cox, who is English yes. or American? Mm. He's English. He's English okay. Yeah. 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 Um, and he he's often the spokesman for, for the series, um, assume just because his English is his first language. Um, another uh, very worthy thing, we've already brushed past it, um, worth mentioning is Oscar Araujo if that's mm-hmm. how you say it, uh, the Spanish composer. Um, now, we're, we're talking about... Well, Andy's just mentioned, like, I don't know what the budget for this game was. Um, obviously, it features some famous uh, voice names. We'll, we'll come on to those. But um, it does employ a 120-piece mm-hmm. orchestra, the Bratislava Symphony, no less. Um, and uh, Araujo's music won the best original score for a video game um, from the International Film Music Critics Association in 2010. Uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty lavish and sumptuous sort of orchestrated soundtrack. 
yeah, it's big. It's like <laughs> yeah. like so, so much of the opening of a door is greeted with like a full choral <laughs> every time mm. you open something. Um, but it, it's playing through it again recently um, for the for this show. There's actually like. A, a few really nice subtle parts as well, which I didn't mm-hmm. um, didn't recall because you're sort of blown away by the obvious, like yeah. big bombastic parts. But um, the, in the uh, uh, the clockwork tower, like this, this is amazing part, which is all like really low key violins and piano that plays while you're doing this platforming section and stuff. Um, it's it's an amazing soundtrack. Um, mm-hmm. I will say as well, as a massive Castlevania nerd, um, mm. was a little bit disappointed at first because Castlevania yeah. does have these very specific songs that you kind yep. of expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the end of it, didn't care. And if anything, <laughs> that is about as high praise that I can give it. So. Yeah, it also uses uh, some of the older tracks from... Uh, there's a track in there that's taken from Super Castlevania 4. Yeah. And uh, Vampire Killer is used in the uh, toy box level. Yeah, the music box. <laughs> yeah, there's a, f- yeah. there's a few cheeky little nods to yeah. bits, but um, but other than that, it, you know, it's, it's it's a unique score, isn't it? but it, sure, it's yeah. fantastic. It's, yeah. you know, like, not not just for a Castlevania game, it's fantastic. For games in general, mm-hmm. this is right, it's right up there. It's absolutely... It's fun. almost completely lacking uh, any of the sort of rock influence of the of some of the previous yeah. games. I mean, obviously, when the series started, it was chip tunes and stuff, and you couldn't tell you know it was it was chips you couldn't tell whether it was supposed to be trumpets or guitars <laughs> but as the series progressed you know we talk about we talked very much about the eclecticness of the symphony of the night mm-hmm. soundtrack where you go from these grand gothic orchestral type pieces to hard rock you know and things like that within the you know in the space of one loading screen but this sticks to its its theme and and a lot of the music sounds very much like it could be out of an elder scrolls game yeah. or even out of lord of the rings you know howard shaw's music Josh, you a fan? Yeah, no. I was going to say the the standout for me in uh, was the fight with the Titan. The music that plays during mm-hmm. that sequence, um, it was just really memorable. Um, it kind of reminded me. I, I mean, the boss fight is a shadow of the Colossus boss fight. But, there are three of those. Yeah, yes. but yes. the the music as well was kind of reminiscent of that as well. Just like this feeling of. Um, killing a very powerful creature, but ultimately a creature that was kind of just minding its own business until you <laughs> murdered it. But um, yeah, the soundtrack is is amazing. I, I I honestly think it's one of the best soundtracks I've heard in a while, and mm-hmm. I yeah, it's it's great. I believe he returns for the sequel. Um, yes. so. Yeah, he yeah, he, he actually um, announced the sequel by accident. Ah. by saying hey I've just done the music for Lords of Shadow 2 <laughs> on his Twitter feed and everyone went Very good. what? <laughs> yeah. and it apparently holds a record for uh, most people in an orchestra uh, scoring a game ever so excellent yeah, yeah it, it sounds like it too yeah. it does uh, I know sometimes they use cut, you know cut down orchestras and either they'll do overlays or or they'll just make it sound big through production somehow but um, this actually sounds like a 120-piece orchestra augmented with choir. Um, it's yeah, it's grand. Grand would be the word. Uh, now, I've heard many, many mixed things about the uh, the, the voice acting, the cast, <laughs> and the characters. So obviously, the headline is um, that they they got some very well-known uh, British acting talent in Robert Carlyle, Natasha, uh, Natasha McElhone, mm-hmm. um, Patrick Stewart, particularly. 
uh, Robert Carlyle as uh, Gabriel Belmont, the main character, and Patrick Stewart as uh, sometime sidekick, sometime narrator, uh, later in the game uh, villain Zobek. Um, now, I'll start with my personal feelings on this. Well, firstly, there is the thing that Robert Carlyle is clearly not providing the oofs and grunts right. for <laughs> Gabriel. Um, he's he's doing the voice, um, and I spoke to. Uh, spoke with Josh about this on Twitter and and I think he he's absolutely right that Robert Carlyle appears to be underacting yeah. and Patrick Stewart appears to be overacting <laughs> but they're both both they both I mean you know I like them both I rate them both Patrick Stewart seems like one of the coolest people in the world <laughs> yeah. but I don't think this represents either of their best work I think sure, it's it's yeah. very phoned in on both counts I mean I prefer Patrick Stewart's performance simply because mm. I'd rather see an actor chew the scenery than nibble at it like Robert Carlyle <laughs> is yeah. Yeah. but yeah it's it's still like Patrick Stewart is just acting like every moment is like this epic <laughs> sequence just like a casual conversation with Robert Carlyle is like this <laughs> life changing moment and it's it's really really distracting and Robert Carlyle seems like he's on a mission to find his lost shoe rather than uh, <laughs> rather than uh, save his wife it, it's yeah I, I think whatever amount of money Mercury Steam spent on these two actors I think mm. they should get their money back and hire some proper <laughs> voice actors because <laughs> they're, like they're two two of like I've seen these actors do great great work they are Absolutely. great actors but like they clearly Clearly, aren't taking it seriously. Yeah, the, the the strange thing to me about it is that Dave Cox has gone out and said that uh, Robert Carlo actually really enjoyed doing it, and that's yeah. why he's back in both Mirror Fate and Lord's Shadow Two. And if you've played um, e- either the demo, the new one, or the Mirror Fate, like he definitely steps it up as mm. uh, Dracula. So yeah, he's a lot. Of, yeah, he's a lot angrier. Like you can t- he's he's almost full Begbie in some of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shadow two. Begbie, what's Begbie backwards? Um, yeah, it's it's a weird thing. Uh, like I, I don't think Robert Carlyle had done video games before, mm-hmm. and I don't know if I mean these. Yeah, these days so many um, you know name Hollywood live action actors do voices for cartoons, you know, CG animations and stuff like that. And maybe he hadn't done a lot of it, and maybe maybe he's not a gamer and he didn't know you know what the what the tone is. But it just it it, it like like Josh says, it's so understated as to be almost yeah, it's like it's like mumblecore or something. Yeah, <laughs> uh, strange one. Um, but yes, overall, and then you've got a few other people uh, turning up, and and I mean, Jason Isaacs turns up later on as mm. Satan and and eats up the scenery. Another fine, fine actor. Mm. He's uncre- um, and- he's, his character is uncredited during the opening sequence, which I thought was a nice touch mm. as well. Yeah, uh, Richard Ridings is Cornell. He's um, he's Pigsy in uh, in uh, oh, Enslaved wow. Odyssey to the West. Mm. Um, I believe I think that's the same guy who's also in um, he plays one of the big apes in uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes too um, he's cool uh, but yes a, a mixed bag and, and I suppose leading on to that um, we should sort of yeah talk about the we, we, as I say we're not going to go into every story beat but I, I found the storytelling was a little uneven and, and like the game like the pace of the action in the game kind of a bit it lurks. There are some interesting moments and points, and and some interesting characters pop up, and and it does feel like because of its length and because of the amount of different kinds of scenery you see, it does feel like an epic quest. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. But the, the storytelling gets lost for me at points, and by the end, I'd you know I'd, I'd kind of 
I didn't care anymore too much personally, but that's probably just me. I think so because I was quite the opposite. I, I, at first, yeah. um, I thought it was it gets off to a very slow, a notoriously slow start, which um, mm-hmm. from gameplay point of view we won't touch for now. But um, in terms of the story, I mean, again, because it wasn't your traditional Castlevania, I didn't really know what to expect. But by the time I'd sort of you know the you know the main the main goals had been outlined and I knew where you know what Gabrielle's quest was I was mm-hmm. I was sold man you know I was completely um, <laughs> taken taken back by this mad journey across you know across these lands you know it's it as you say it does feel like an epic you travel across this huge gothic landscape from you know doing all these ridiculous things in order to save your wife you know it's a it's a pretty you know pretty amazing task but um one of the things that i see where it does break it up is every chapter um well every level um is started with a narration by patrick stewart Mm. um where he just hams it up to the nth degree (laughs) and and it's it does break up the story a little bit because it's kind of it it sort of hints at who knows what he's going to find behind the next corner um (laughs) so it's a little bit cheesy but um it's into traditions, I suppose. I mean, yeah. you know, we talked obviously about the infamous uh, scenes in Symphony of the Night, and there was mention earlier from Scrussell of some of the the ham ham and cheese present mm-hmm. in the PS2 games, which which was the norm, you know, ten years ago for an action game, particularly one that had been translated from Japanese, um, to have you know crazy crazy script and crazy voice acting, thinking about you know Resident, the early Resident Evils and things like that. Um, so to, for us to now be talking about you know the the, the minutia of a, of performances by people like Robert Carlyle and Patrick Stewart is sort of, it does say something about you know where games have have moved to but sometimes I kind of hanker for the absurdity of the old <laughs> of the old ways yeah. but that's probably me being um, you know an, an old person. If you, if you like that, you should definitely try out the Lords of Shadow Two demo. There's a couple of big. Yeah. Castlevania <laughs> winks in that that had me yeah. squealing. <laughs> I have it downloaded on uh, on Steam as we speak. Uh, didn't get time to play it before we recorded, unfortunately, but uh, that's okay. We're not doing a preview anyway, so uh, that's fine. Um, Sean, Josh, anything to say about storytelling? And uh, uh, I think yeah. they sold me on the world uh, more than anything, and like that's what I found pushed me through the game, like wanting to see these new locations. <clears throat> And uh, like the world that they had described before you got there, like how they talked about like the land of the necromancer and the the land uh, the castle where the vampires live and stuff like that. All of that stuff really interested me. It was just the core story that I wasn't interested in. And as we've already touched on, the reason why is because the characters didn't you know draw me in. Um, and characters are kind of important for me to be drawn into a story i need strong characters to do that otherwise i i just don't care but there there was enough there in yeah in the world itself that uh drawed me in mm-hmm. yeah for me the the one problem like i, I actually quite enjoyed the story it just it didn't blow me away and i wasn't you know kind of whatever on it but um the weird thing about lords of shadow is that it feels like it has a personality complex like throughout most of the game like it'll be this really deadly serious scene where he's crying about his uh his wife and then the next scene a chupacabra shows up and steals all your stuff and smacks himself on the ass and goes meh 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 and runs away those <laughs> those bits are be... like straight out of fable aren't they That's yeah. Yeah, it's yeah it's just very strange but um 
it didn't like distract too much from me, but I think it does take away from the gravitas of everything. It's interesting that um, Andy, you're keenest on the on the plot and the storytelling. When, if anything, I would expected the biggest, perhaps the biggest Castlevania lore fan to potentially be the most kind of offended or, or precious about the lore. But this game actually does some, you know, it kind of takes things in a new direction. It sets up certain things that are now, you know, um, canon and, and and whatever. But you you you're happy with the way that they handled it? Yeah, I, lo- I loved it because um, as as we've mentioned many times across these two podcasts, the Castlevania canon is. Uh, absolute mess like there's no there's no point trying to follow it and this is likely one of the main reasons why there's been so many games released in the uk that have just been called castlevania because if it was called castlevania 2 or castlevania something or other you do get those people thinking well do have i had to have played the first one to know what's going on whereas the reality is they are all sort of self-contained there's been very few direct sequels in the series and despite being sort of you know, arbitrarily linked um, in yeah. some ways. Whereas what Lords of Shadow did, it, um, it, it does have all of those staples from the Castlevania games. They've just put their own spin on it. It's a bit like mm-hmm. when Marvel rebooted X-Men as Ultimate X-Men and gave a sort of modern and new fresh take on it because these were characters invented in the 60s and just certain things weren't relevant anymore. It felt mm-hmm. a little bit like that. So, you know, you've got Old Rocks, you've got Brona, the two vampire lords, mm-hmm. there in it. You've got um, Weigel Village, which is another Castlevania mm-hmm. train. You've got the clock tower. You've got the big set of stairs going up to Dracula's, mm-hmm. you know, lair. You know, it's it it did have. Oh, and Carmilla as well is a is a Castlevania trope. She's a she's a boss in Castlevania two, um, and. Uh, at one point in Lords of Shadow she says, well someone says by that time that this night is through someone will bleed bloody tears which is exactly mm. how she attacks in Castlevania 2 <laughs> so they did they they took all these little staple parts of Castlevania lore and just you know did their own thing with them so I, I, I really enjoyed that I really enjoyed the, um, the new a fresh take on stuff that I'd been following for a long time they did their research and they they weren't just playing fast and loose with stuff without honouring its yeah, legacy. Absolute, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Correspondent Scrussell says uh, that he enjoyed, he says the voice acting by Robert Carlyle and Patrick Stewart is great too. That is when they get something to work with. I especially love his and Carlyle's work in the epilogue. That mm-hmm. scene is fantastic. It feels so iconic and quotable. Mm. Yeah, it's true. I think you can make a case that um, as the game goes on, Carlisle does become a bit more alive as the plot reaches its big finish, you know, he does sort of come out of the little mumbly shell and starts Mm. screaming across the people, (laughs) so that's definitely something that you can see Yeah, we'll we'll talk a little about the ending later Mm. because it it became well known Um, and the overall scenario um, like this is the thing that appeals to me about it and this was the thing when I first uh, played the start of the game I can't even remember if I played the demo but I played that same bit when I when I bought the game the first time of three round um, even though the game does get off to a slow start slightly um, you know obviously it's got that thing where early on you've got very limited range of attacks and, and you know this is a game where you can dive back into earlier levels once you've equipped all these new weapons and magic meters and various powers that you get along the way and early on you've got really it is just it you know even 
it's a it's a button basher i mean mm-hmm. really and and actually that one of the problems i have with it is that it doesn't really evolve enough beyond that for me but it is the setting that grabs me you know the the rainy night the 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 wolves coming out over the fence and and all that stuff and it 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 certainly looks the part and and visually like as i say i haven't played the ps2 ones that that you speak fondly of but that thing of actually as much as I love 16-bit graphics, pixel art, and and 2D games, going into the world in that way was uh, it was beguiling. Mm. I will say one thing about the combat. Um, my latest playthrough, the one I've done for this show, is on the hardest difficulty. Yeah. And because I'm a masochist, I haven't actually upgraded or bought any more attacks than the oh, ones no. you start with. Do you need them? Nope. That's what I thought. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah. And what's quite good about that is the bare bones combat. I mean, just before we uh, came on to record, I had made it to uh, the Vampire Lord boss hmm. um, right towards the end of the game. I've got about three chapters to go. So I've gone through several of the more intense boss fights. And when you don't have the crutch of all these extra moves and more damaging attacks and combos, it is a you know, as intense and as raw a, a beat, you know, a fighting game as you can get. You know, like you really have to battle for every single bit of uh, you know opening that you see. Every time you see an opening, you've really got to take it and attack and get out of the way. And um, so, I, I found it does the combat does lend itself to being an excellent action game. Well, I think that that's interesting because um, now I know uh, two other Kane Rince contributors I know have very different feelings about this game, but I also know them well enough to know how they they like to play things. Now, our Jay, um, he thoroughly enjoyed Lords of Shadow. He's somebody who uh, plays games on easy. He doesn't enjoy games like Bayonetta and Devil May Cry. He's very happy to have you know have a game where you have a limited set of moves and he'll bash through them and he, you know he'll play God of War in that way. Um, and yeah, he 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 had a great time with Lords of Shadow. Whereas uh, our Darren Foreman, uh, who is a Ninja Gaiden uh, master and uh, and loves his deep technical combat games, he absolutely caned. Uh, DMC last year he hates Lords of Shadow like he really hates it he found it incredibly repetitive and shallow now I'm somebody I do enjoy games like Bayonetta and DMC I know Josh does as well um, very much and I like trying to learn those games even though I'm never particularly good at them but I can also get on board with um, a, a more limited combat system my suspicion was playing through Lords of Shadow was that although I was spending uh whatever it is you're spending on moves that I barely touched a tiny percentage of the ones that I that I unlocked and I really became hugely reliant on a, on a few key moves and no matter who I was fighting the actual pace the pattern of the combat seemed to be almost identical um, and over 20 hours that got a bit dull for me mm. I think the depth of the game for me came from uh, balancing the light and dark moves and trying to make sure because you can build up this meter that means that as you hit enemies they basically spawn those energy bubbles out Mm. of their body Mm. and so for me the depth came from making sure I never got hit building up that meter like absorbing all the energy from the enemies and then either unleashing devastating attacks that killed them really quickly with the dark powers or recovering health that I desperately needed in those scenarios so that for me that was enough 
to uh, to keep me engaged. In the end, for me, it was, but it took about, what, eight hours before you had everything like that available mm, to yeah. you? Well, which yeah. Which is insane. This is it. This is it. I mean, exactly what Josh says. On hard... Um, on the hard difficulty, especially when you're faffing around about upgrades, um, that becomes so raw and so like important. Just that balance, const- constantly teasing the enemies into doing a, um, a a block, so you can if you block at the exact time when an enemy attacks you, mm-hmm. you deflect them. And when you deflect them, uh, two consecutive hits will automatically fill up your bar at the bottom of the screen, which will allow them to drop the orbs where you can charge up your either curing magic or your dark magic, which does more damage. So even though these enemies on hard could kill you in a couple of hits, you're constantly sort of teasing these attacks out of them so you can counter them. And at the same time, you have to remember that there's enemies all around. Um, so I, I think that, like, uh, in in that way, the combat's actually really smart. It's, it's constantly um, offering you the risk-reward mechanic, which a lot of great games do. But linking it into the other thing that you said, Leon, in terms of this game getting started, I think that this game is... Like it has one of the most damningly poor starts to a game ever. I think that that I think other than the setting of that intro, it does just come across as you know a n other generic action game. And then yeah. there's an on rails sequence which is mm. particularly uninspired. And then, as Patrick Stewart says himself, you're in the dead bog, <laughs> which is. Really bad, really boring level, which on the PS2 mm-hmm. and Xbox suffers from terrible frame rate issues. Um, and it's only when you sort of best that second uh, one of the Titans and start the real journey towards the um, mm-hmm. the castle. So about two or three chapters in, mm. the game just unlocks. And by the time you actually make it to Dracula's castle, it's 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 really firing on all cylinders. And all the boss battles are really interesting and the combat's great because you've got all these tools at your disposal. It just takes so long to get going, but when it does, it keeps getting better. I think this game has... A ten-hour, twelve-hour game that would have been like almost perfect. Oh, it would be incredible. Um, I like, and I, I do wonder whether, like, as Sean said, whether Kojima's influence did impact the length of this game <laughs> because this game clearly, clearly needs an editor. Like, mm. I think you could cut five to ten hours mm. of this game, totally. and. Yeah. It would be better for it. It would be a lot better, um, especially towards the opening. Um, mm. But there are some filler levels in between yeah. some great moments yeah. that could just be removed, and this game would be so much better. As it stands, I really, really like Castlevania Lords of Shadow, but it clearly has a few problems that yeah. hold it back. Yeah. The knife could yeah. be sharpened some more, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, when yeah. I was first looking at the map, um, the the overworld map, like I, again, you know, I played it. I'm fortunate to have played the Ultimate Edition on on a PC with a solid state hard drive. Like, there's no loading times. There's not everything. You just press a button and you're in the level, and and that's all fantastic. Mm. But just looking at the amount of these dots laid out on this world map, I was just <laughs> thinking, really? Like, I remember it, you talked about God of Three, God of War Three earlier. Um, now that that game is high on spectacle and low on um, completion time, but. It, 
for me that felt like the right length for that sort of game like i i really like god of war 2 as well but i i thought if anything that was a little too long at 14 hours or something like that for that sort of a game um god of war 3 was was briefer and just like yeah like the like the length of maybe two of the extended lord of the rings films back to back that for me that is that is the kind of ideal length for something like that the you know it's it's a romp it's an adventure it's a fantasy it doesn't need to be it's it's not war and peace and <laughs> and, and 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 yeah particularly when you've got these obvious sections which are like some of the puzzle design i think is quite cool but yeah the, the, again just the pacing's weird like you'll have two bosses in a row and then three puzzles in a row and then a boss and then a puzzle and then a platforming section and it it it's kind of yeah it's it's kind of weird I, I guess you know these are the things which um you know this studio that had only made games that weren't hugely well received before or or, or were quite obscure you know it was still i mean i suppose it's remarkable sort of the the overall production values the quality that's there if they were working to a budget as well um i mean presumably they never would have been able to you know um come up with spectacle the level of some of the stuff some of the set pieces in god of war but saying that the like that that final flying boss the shadow of the colossus-esque boss that's um technically it's uh i mean so i don't know if that was tricky on the console versions but on the pc um it was that was a little frustrating at points but visually Mm -hmm. you know it was it was it stood out anyway yeah um correspondent Capin green says of the combat here the combat has a very nice flow to it backed up with superb animation but i found it really came into its own with the introduction of light and dark magic eight hours into the game no i just added that acquisition of the former turns offense into your defense punishing uh, the enemy and healing yourself in one attack dark magic improves your damage output allowing you to take out tough foes with relative ease both forms of magic enable you to enhance your moveset and alter how you fight on the fly tactical thinking is catered for with this as decisions on when to heal when to fill up magic orbs and maximizing damage output all rely on your choice of magic if any this depth to the combat kept me hooked to a game lacking in interesting narrative Uh, it's very much echoing your thoughts there Josh that actually the 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 dynamism the 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 thing that keeps you interested in the in the combat in this is it's that juggling of of magic and risk reward as opposed to uh frame counting and technical stuff like you might get in a platinum developed game or something like that uh, Scrussell says the combat mechanics which are the main meat of the game are pretty good it's not on the level of something like the work of Platinum but it was definitely great fun to engage with your range of moves with the combat cross is nice and varied and animations are great the enemy design is a highlight too while there are plenty of your usual trolls and giant spiders and such there are other really interesting ones to fight as well like the scarecrow creature or the walking coffins <laughs> Yeah, I think my interest in the game actually increased as it went on. I certainly did find the the early levels a slog, and I I was actually having a good time, um, sort of halfway through um, towards the back end, um, and I guess I wasn't as aware why. But now thinking back, it was things like the introduction of of some slightly less you know predictable monsters although of course i want to see giant werewolves in a castlevania game you also need to be surprised because i mean that's one of the great you know we talked about some of the sort of one-offs and things that you get in symphony of the night and that's part of the the intrigue and the just weird monsters that you should get in a castlevania like plants with a naked woman on the on their back and stuff you know stuff like that 
Uh, we've only really brushed on the aesthetics. Now we've got some three-word reviews which really uh, sing sing their praises. Um, and again, uh, you know, I'm I'm having played this on the ultimate edition on PC, and um, and it looks and it looks very nice and shiny. The the textures have been upresed. But um, so back in 2010, um, I remember there being quite some talk about the frame rate on both versions but especially the 360 version but overall i think the visuals were still um highly regarded yeah i mean i still consider it one of the best looking games of the last generation and uh, may, if not it it's it's a stunning game and not just from a purely it, it's technically very impressive but like the art design in that game is incredible and you know when you're looking like I've got a couple of these like art books that you get for certain games and you look through them and you see these concept art sketches and when you actually see it in you know what they achieved in game you kind of go well okay I see how that was the concept for what they were what they've got on screen there but with um, Lords of Shadow it's almost like these are these you know these concept images have been brought to life on screen and you're walking around them like it's like level three you're inside this gigantic hollowed out tree which has got waterfalls running down Mm. the middle of it and the Mm. sun's hitting them and you've got a rainbow i mean that's early in the game so it's quite a memorable one but then you've also got the music box um Mm -hmm. which is you're literally inside a music box that's moving (laughs) and as you solve puzzles you play different bits of music that move different parts of the level that's all quite amazing. Um, Dracula's Castle itself is pure, you know, although cliched gothic, it's um, yeah. amazing to look at, you know. Um, mm. it, I, I do consider it, it, just in terms of sheer, you know, graphical clout, one of the best looking games of the generation. It just, it looks beautiful. Mm. For, for me, it's yeah. not just the art design, it's also the way they compose the the shots throughout the game yes. like they don't give the uh they don't give the player control of the camera but i didn't mind at mm. all no, because the you. camera was always in the perfect spot to get just the right <laughs> angle like these beautiful waterfalls and uh, one that really um stood out to me is you know the the witch raven's castle mm-hmm. that yes. that section mm-hmm. where you go up to that um that uh building and then there's the huge mountain valley in the background and you're like oh wow. this is just incredible <laughs> like it looks like something out of the lord of the rings films like it's just really mm-hmm. visually um visually impactful and it's not like i don't think it is like technically uh, hugely impressive because when you you know if, if there are a couple of sections where they uh, do a close up on some of the characters' faces, and the characters' faces do look a bit odd, it's just mm. the choices they make in how they frame all the shots that's really impressive. Like I'm, I don't know if like the concept artist had like a more direct role in this game's production or not, because it really feels like somebody with an eye for composition was involved in all the shots mm. in this game it's really well done I was going to say I don't know if it's true in the other versions but um, on the PC version um, there is a an absolute raft of concept art to unlock like they're mm. obviously very yeah. very proud of, of their work yeah well for me I think the art is actually what helped me get through the like slower moments because I mean even though what you're doing and story wise there isn't much happening in most of well, probably about like half the chapters. Uh, there's still like gorgeous stuff to just see uh, throughout. I would say 
like 90% of the game or something always something awesome to look at so yeah really impressed with how it looks yeah I think that the um, the fixed camera is I mean I'm with Josh completely I think that like the way that they frame up certain areas totally adds to it I think that also having a fixed camera is probably one of the reasons why it looks so good because I think when you're obviously dictating where the absolutely you know, where the player can look there's probably some trickery going in away off camera yeah um, of course lots of stuff not being drawn yeah, basically. Just, yeah, yeah just disappearing as you leave yeah. the screen but um, even, another thing I really like about the uh, actually having the fixed camera is the uh, occasional moments where it fixes to an almost 2D perspective and you get some sort of classic Castlevania platforming sections where it's the camera just sits almost like it's you know yeah. on a 2D plane uh, again it, they're not the most amazing moments in the game they're not the best controlling moments in the game but it's just mm. that you can tell that like despite my personal fears going into the Lords of Shadow game of like who are these non-Castlevania eager team making Castlevania games <laughs> you could tell that these people were fans and and wanted yeah, to sure. you know to embrace the history of the series and for me those little moments were you know again like everyone's kind of said little moments just to keep the you know some of the slightly duller moments at bay basically mm-hmm. Our correspondent Scrussell says the atmosphere of the game is fantastic. It's a very enjoyable place just to be. The graphics and world design are utterly gorgeous. It's very highly detailed, but it still feels very artistic too. Oftentimes you walk around a corner to be greeted by a scene that looks it looks like it's come directly out of the concept art. Added to this is the wonderful soundtrack, which complements the look of the environs perfectly. Mercury Steam did a great job reappropriating the Castlevania tropes and themes into their own vision. It feels like it's a story that's come straight out of some old medieval manuscript full of mysterious characters in a world with a deep history behind it. And even though watching trailers for the sequel gave away one of the best surprises of the story of this game, there were still plenty to be had. Although I don't think I would hold the game up as being an example of great storytelling in games, for most of the time, it's just your usual video game story about the good guy killing the evil guys who wants to take over the world with a lot of killing smaller monsters on the way. But there are quite a few interesting reveals throughout, in particular the backstory of the Lords of Shadow themselves. Captain Green says, I wasn't prepared for just how beautiful this game was. Several times my jaw hit the floor as I was treated to some of the most stunning locales I've ever seen in a video game. This is a testament to the excellent design poured into the game, a feature that extends beyond the environments to enemy designs and sound design. And insert coins on those aesthetics says the game is undeniably beautiful. The monsters and characters are carefully designed to fit the gothic horror aesthetic and the landscapes, buildings and vistas are breathtaking. A level itself may not be terribly interesting, but it is entirely worth entirely worth it when you round a corner to find yourself overlooking rocky mountainsides and a vampire's imposing castle. Each level and every creature you come across in your journey is something to behold, and every element of the game adds up to be a definitive gothic horror experience. I adore classic gothic horror literature from the Romantic and Victorian era, like Blam... Blam... blam. <laughs> like like Bram Stoker's Dracula and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and this game captures the spirit of that genre so very well it is a time setting dramatic persuasion not often visited in video games and it's so refreshing for a gothic horror fan like myself to be a part of this world that I had only had the opportunity to read about until now fairly unanimous on the visual side but what about you've just uh, you've just sort of mentioned it Andy, um, the platforming is perhaps more divisive than the looks of the game, um, where I certainly had 
problems in certain areas with um it's it's that thing of the modern action game probably post well i mean i guess it's really going back as far as sands of time sands, of time. sands of time yeah. has a lot to uh, answer for <laughs> yeah and obviously uncharted took that mantle and it's that platforming where it's either it's either completely peril free because it's kind of pre-described exactly what platform it's you know this is not your mario platforming this is not this is like if you are pointing in the right direction and you press jump you will you know you will grip the ledge but also bits where you simply drop to your death although it's not hugely punished in this game simply because you misunderstood the perspective or the layout or where you were supposed to go next and the actual much like we took we've talked about nathan drake's weird arcing through the air on on this uh, podcast before and i think gabriel has a similar sort of thing he doesn't quite sort of magically stick to places he shouldn't go but just sometimes the physics feel a bit kooky you know yeah no agreed um the 2d bits i just sort of mentioned are probably the best of the platforming bits because they kind of throw in a few little you have to go back on yourself look around try and find the next part bit again fairly peril free but probably the more interesting ones. The rest of them are just typical Uncharted Tomb Raider, Prince of Persia style um, you know, find the next obstacle to press up and you go up mm. them. The worst part is when it falls back into some brilliant Castlevania I'd like to think it's a reference to Castlevania 64, is when you're in the um, the clockwork tower there's a few mm. actual platforming parts where you have to yes. jump on moving ledges and the it's awful like I've, there's been times where I've jumped onto the platform and because of the way the game works when um, Gabriel lands he takes a step forward yeah. <laughs> and he just walks off the platform yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a few yeah. awful bits like that um, so no, I think the worst bit for me was uh, was in the final bit of DLC, um, the lava platforms. Exactly oh, that. Oh, like until yes. until you learn until you learn that you the timing, the sequence that the platforms are going to appear in, you are always going to jump off the other end of the. You know, yep. you think, oh, I'm going to really need to stretch for this jump. And actually, what I was doing was overreaching. Um, you actually only needed to go from the middle of each one. But if you if you if you go right, get to the edge and give it a big old jump, <laughs> you will just fall off the other side. And then it's followed up with a sequence where a rather comedic sequence where you're scrambling around a pillar while a monster's <laughs> yeah. kind of looking, looking around at the, the forgotten one, I should say, is yeah. looking for you. Like this is this is this fearsome monster who can't work out that you're on the <laughs> other side of a of a pillar three inches from his face. Um, yeah, I mean that's the DLC. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that separately, but um, yes, modern platforming then in a 3D environment. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, like, the fixed camera goes some way to helping, mm. but also it goes some way to making it worse. For instance, the 2D parts, um, it's very generous with uh, how you land on it. Like, yeah. I, I experimented with a little bit of this myself. Although you are still in a 3D game world, when it jumps to that 2D side on camera, you can actually control the game like a 2D platformer. Yeah, you, you know, yeah. you just hold left and right, so it's um, you know you're less prone to diving off the platform. But sometimes the camera, it's still a 3D game. Uh, again, the clock tower, it fixes um, from one sort of you know vantage point and shows the uh, the platforms that you've got to jump across. Um, and in one particular mode, um, you're on this moving platform that's heading towards an electric wall. And if you hit the electric wall, obviously you get stunned and fall to your death. But yeah. you can't judge the perspective. Um, yeah. Like you're yeah. standing on this platform and you're, you've got to jump onto the, and grab a ledge above the electric wall. But you, you can't tell when you're right next to it. So you've just got to take a leap of faith based on like really a really 
like poor judgment. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see if they've ironed some of these problems out with the with the sequel. Learned from what what you know feel to to most of us, even even you know even people who enjoyed the game, that these were bits that frustrated them. Scrussell again says platforming in the game ranges from clunky but passable to utterly infuriating. Most of the more modern Uncharted style platforming that pretty much every other action adventure seems to feel the need to include nowadays is alright. It doesn't often require much dexterity and your punishment for failure is not often harsh. The more traditional precision platforming sections on the other hand are abysmal. The jumping arc of your character is terribly floaty and unpredictable with a really awful and inconsistent feeling of momentum. And you can't ever be sure exactly where you'll land either because your character always takes an extra step forward when he lands too. This made certain areas of the game, most notably the music box level, incredibly frustrating. I got through that bit fairly quickly actually. It yeah. was the it was that yeah, it was the, the, the clock tower that was um that yeah that I found more annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh and a few bits of the DLC. Yeah, for me it was the um the Necromancers level where there's all a bunch of moving platforms that you have to jump back and forth between and then and jumping through portals and stuff like that and uh luckily there for some reason they don't punish you when you fall it just like kind of warps you back to where you were yeah it, it seems like a strange decision to make that it's an admission of guilt <laughs> yeah. I, I think I, I felt that was definitely an admission of guilt yeah it was yeah. like okay we know people are going to fall off here loads of time yeah. so we're not going to take any life off them yeah um reminded me a little too much of the um the meat circus from psychonauts although it wasn't it wasn't that uh frustrating um Let's just crowbar in a mention of Super Meat Boy here because every cane and rinse has to mention it. So it's no Super Meat Boy, is he? No. Uh, insert coin says the jump feels terrible I really cannot describe why this is so important to me but it's something that I keep coming back to the rest of the game is so beautifully animated it's a shame to see one of your most basic actions be so floaty and unrealistic it doesn't react to gravity in any normal logical way it feels like Gabriel is on the moon it's like a jump out of someone's first year programming project that they whipped up over a weekend in Game Maker (laughs) harsh but maybe, maybe heading in the direction of fair uh, we sort of talked a little about the puzzles. I don't know if anyone has any um, highlights, uh, but actually, I every single one. Uh, I, I like. Let's talk about the inclusion of the option to not do the puzzles. Um, so you can buy your way out of having to solve any of the puzzles in the game. Now, I didn't do this once. I, I wanted to solve them all myself. Mm-hmm. And apart from one that I looked up on YouTube because I didn't think it was explaining what I had to do at all, which was the. Um, the one where you have to punch the ground um, yeah. in, in the wheel. Now, maybe I was being thick and I should have just worked that out, but I was I was walking across and nothing was happening. It was like, okay, you got to punch it. So, um, but I actually thought the the puzzles had some quite, you know, there, there was a good variety of different um, mechanisms, and there's the kind of the the sort of three D chess game type scenario, mm. and various lining things up and and working stuff out and lateral thinking and um yeah i thought even though again i felt the pacing was weird like things were bunched up in different areas Mm. individually taken apart i thought the puzzles were quite fun and just the right level of teasingness yeah i'll go with that i i hate mini games in games um okay i i i extreme i have an extreme dislike for games which have an almost a different game within themselves for a mini game such yeah. as pipe mania in bioshock when you're okay. hacking it yeah. stuff like that mm-hmm. it, it annoys me it's it's too much um 
Whereas these did feel like little, almost Professor Layton-style puzzles to do yeah. uh, midway through certain, you know, an action sequence. And it's like, right, you've just done this quite, you know, busy level where you're constantly, like, managing your damage output versus getting health back and not getting hit and all these different types of enemies. And then suddenly it's like, right, here's one of those puzzles where you've got to spin three rings round and get all the things doing the same. Um... I really enjoy. I, I really like most of them. That I've played through quite a lot of them today. In fact, so um, yeah. they're quite fresh in the mind. The um, the the chess one's kind of weird. It's like battle chess midway through the game. Yeah. yeah. Um, and some of them are actually important parts of the level. Like there's a lot of get, um, light beam puzzles where you've got to yes. like bend light round using little statues to refract it. Zelda esque. Yeah, yeah, very Zelda esque. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, yeah, but I, I don't think there's any that. Like stand out as like being ridiculously frustrating or unfair, and of course, if you do get stuck at them and you just want to play an action game, you can skip them. I mean, all that you miss is some points that you use for leveling up, which, as I've, I'm in the process of proving, you don't actually need to do. So, um, you know, there's, there's what I'm saying is there's barely any punishment for skipping them. It's just it's down yeah. to you whether you want the distraction. Mm. Scrussell says the puzzle sections of the game are a little better than the platforming, mostly towards the start of the game where they are easier. None of them tried to do anything especially original, but sometimes they can be a welcome break from the action, giving you a moment to slow down and soak in the atmosphere. But a lot of them feel more like an arbitrary annoyance than anything else, though, especially when some of them require you to have certain move unlocked, but it doesn't tell you so. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, so I've mentioned that pacing a couple of times. Was it just me? Does it feel like it just it just felt like I don't know how they came up with the order of things like normally you would expect things to be more evenly I know it's not like life but it's a video game um, you'd expect things in a game to be more kind of evenly dotted out whereas this mm. it always felt like it was yeah you'd have like three of one kind of level and then you'd have a boss followed by a mini a mini boss followed by a boss straight away with nothing in between or maybe a boss and then a puzzle and then no normal levels for a while is that is that is that fair or am I was it just my experience it's fair. I think. I, I wonder if that has something to do with how the chapters are broken up. Like each each time the level ends, it takes you out to the book, and you have to go back in. It gives you a chance to stop everything at, at every ending. So, I wonder if that kind of screws up most of the pacing there. Yeah, a lot of the levels in the middle of the game as well are based around like one thing. Yeah, like yeah. a boss fight or a door to open or a puzzle right. to solve. And sometimes some are longer than others, where you'll have to do like a mini puzzle to get part of the you know the greater yeah, puzzle. Yeah. Mm. But to um you know towards the middle of the game, it is just like right, you've done the one thing we asked of you this level. Right, next level, we've done the one. Yeah, now you've done the yeah. one thing. So it is quite bitty. Um, you know, it it makes me think that, you know maybe they would have been better served by just joining a f- bunch of them together and just having like some bigger levels that worked as chapters rather than. You know, yeah, I wondered if it was parts. technical reasons um, because of you know the the, the quality of the graphics and it stuff that maybe for the well be. last gen consoles maybe it was broken up for reasons of RAM. I don't know. Based on the team and who were doing it, do you think mm-hmm. that there was a chance that they just thought this is one and done? So yeah. let's just Could do be, every, yeah. let's just go crazy. Could well be. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. as as you say, because the mechanics aren't the thing that are uh, spoiled by this. Yeah. Like, at the core of the game is 
good well not just good i think it, the core of the game's pretty great um the fact that there's kind of too much of this game didn't really bother me as much yeah. as uh, a game where the actual core of it is fundamentally broken like assassin's creed um, for instance the first assassin's creed game has <laughs> has mm. so much to do in it but the actual controlling your man and doing the missions is rather tedious so when you when you get that sudden reveal when you see the whole map and all the objectives you just go oh no <laughs> like this is going to take yeah. 20 hours yeah and the rest mm. Yeah, and I've actually seen that comparison from people who didn't get into it in the way that uh, you guys obviously did, and I feel somewhere between the, between the the most positive and most negative appraisal. Um, that I think, yeah, I think for people who didn't feel the combat, didn't care much for the storytelling or atmosphere, that that it, it they did find it a slog. Um, but overall, you know, most of our uh, most of our feedback, although it's been um, it's not been unanimous in praise, it's been positive. I think more, you know, and the the, the reviews were in that sort of that sort of sphere as well, weren't they? They're were in the sort of eighty something um, reviews. Yeah. You know, it, it didn't it wasn't it wasn't reviewed in the same way that like The Last of Us or something was reviewed, but it was reviewed in a you know this is solidly entertaining and excellent. Probably, in fact, a similar sorts of uh, scores to the the first ps2 possible possibly both of the ps2 games got um but for whatever reason this got this ended up getting more attention to do with timing or or expectations or the fact that it you know looked damn gorgeous in videos or whatever i'm not sure insert coins on uh, on that pacing and design says most levels consist of walking in a straight line being stopped to fight a number of enemies every once in a while, maybe collecting a key or two and finishing the level, broken up by some rather mundane climbing sections or environmental puzzles. This is a complaint that could be equally levelled against the God of War or Uncharted games, but it's rarely heard in those games because there's always something happening. There are giant set-piece moments that you get to take part in with reg- relative regularity. Unfortunately, there is not much of that happens in Lords of Shadow that make any of its overly long, simple levels stand out. It drags out rather eventful events for far too long, spreading them very thin. The game is way too long. This probably should have been the first thing I noted. I like a game that can give you good value for money, but this game's content is being spread thin like fiercely rationed butter on the world's largest piece of toast. So much of this game felt like padding purely to extend the playtime. Repetitive battles, empty hallways, unnecessary legwork. Yeah, I felt, again, I felt I felt less negatively in that regard the, the further on and I played the game um i think the fact that the the abilities that you picked up even even the extra support weapons which is you know a core part of castlevania mm-hmm. from you know daggers and holy water and all that even having a variety of those and you can modify them with your magic powers as well mm-hmm. even though you might be fighting the same monsters again for the umpteenth time it might be a variant, and you maybe can make it more interesting for yourself by by tweaking things, working out the quickest and most economic way to tackle these foes. Instead of, you know, maybe it's that thing where maybe sometimes it's down to the player a little bit to make it more interesting. Um, I suppose the way uh, the way that something like DMC encourages it is by giving you a, a grading system and a score system, and you've got nothing like that here. There's no reason for you to not button bash and use the most basic, simple, repetitive combos. Maybe they could have put something in to actually reward stellar play there is a bit in a way oh uh, the not being hit thing i suppose yeah you get an um you get a a task to do on every level oh there's that as well yeah Um, Yeah. 
And some of them are things like do levels without being hit, or do levels in certain times, or build up certain mm. combos and stuff. Um, so th- they've got a few things in there. I mean, the only thing that I wouldn't agree with if, uh, Uncert Coins has said there is that um, um, he says that there's um, you know like not much happens in Lords of Shadow, but I would say that like although there are some levels that are significantly more interesting than others, it mm. is a game that on every level as you go through it after the you know that initial slow start there's always something new to do look at or fight mm-hmm. there's like a you know a, a boss like when you get to the um the gigantic ogre that you mm. fight on one level that's the only time it's there it's it, <laughs> they don't repeat it and you know, no. there's, there's a lot of stuff which is like like even the wargs and um, the giant wolf mm-hmm. things like you, you fight a couple at the start of the game and then well, first you fight one and then later on in the you know you fight two at the same time which presents its own challenge and then you fight one and the game goes right you can get on it now yeah and right fight it, yeah. things and then even later on from that it's like right now you can get on it and climb things <laughs> it's yeah like, and it, then like, you can get on a spider and then you can yeah, yeah, yeah and it, get it, on a troll like, and a pig yeah, yeah it's always there's there is always something new to do on each level even if that new thing is just like look at this vista it's amazing mm-hmm. There is always something on each level in Lords of Shadow. Hmm. Talking of the big ogre, he's a kind of in-stage mini-boss. He reminded me of a, of a sort of Uncharted-type set piece in the in that sense. Um, maybe even he's a bit Resident Evil-y in some ways. But um, bosses. Now we've already mentioned there are th- there are three which are. You know, this game is derivative of a lot of things. There's no denying that. Um, even if in a recent interview Dave Cox said he you know he was annoyed by God of War references in reviews well don't make a game that's like God of War would be my <laughs> would be my thing but um the shadow of the colossus bosses um now there's there's actually a thing about these that I prefer to shadow of the colossus which is there's no damn grip meter <laughs> you can um it may be that might be one of the most important things about the way that Shadow of the Colossus is, um, we obviously we did a podcast on that game, um, but it is quite nice to have all the the, the spectacle um, of uh, of climbing a giant behemoth, the Titan, and uh, finding its weak spots and punching punching them off uh, without having to worry about how much uh, how many lizard tails you've eaten up to that stage. But some good um, spectacle in these bits. The second one's a highlight for me, um, mainly because the design of the Titan is so interesting. Um, like the first one you fight, kind of is just like generic stone monster in yes, a river yeah. of ice. Mm-hmm. Whereas the second one feels like okay, it's still a stone monster, but like every bit of it feels like sculpted and designed by some mm. kind of uh, you know artist. Like it feels like. Like, because they talk about the Titans as like weapons or something like that. It does feel like like this constructed creature that was designed to scare people. Like, mm-hmm. this isn't just a living thing. This is like a weapon that's been, you know, designed specifically to strike fear into you. And that second one definitely is really intimidating. The third one. Um, reminded me a little too much of a Shadow of the Colossus <laughs> boss. Yeah. Um, specifically, the what everyone knows the serpent flying yeah, one. one. Yeah, it, it, yeah it, it, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, but it was still fun. It but, still looks yeah. spectacular as well. It's like a mm, it's yeah. like a really horrific version of um, of that boss from Shadow of the Colossus. Mm. Um, another thing which 
does make it quite similar to Shadow of the Colossus, but completely lacking in the art or subtlety that um, that uh, Shadow of the Colossus uh, managed to do this with, is in Shadow of the Colossus, as you start killing these things, um, you suddenly get that little pang of guilt, because mm. they're not doing anything. And everyone knows it, it's one of the main themes of the, of the game. In mm. Lords of Shadow, as you're about to fight the second one, um, the the game goes out of its way to sort of go, have you been listening? This one's the last of its kind, so if you kill it, there's not going to be any more. So make sure that you know that. Make sure that you feel guilty going in. And the second one has a face, and it looks really sombre while you're fighting it and stuff, and the music kind of adds to it. So it's like... They've gone for that similar theme that you know you've just basically made a, a race of these beasts extinct with your actions, um, but it's done very, very like heavy-handed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other bosses, like I didn't fight. They're, they're your more normal um, fight uh, a monster in a giant arena, and for, for the most part, um, you know, I found myself relying on the. On the same combos and the the, the ability uh, that you can top up your health by by activating light magic and stuff, but there were these weren't bosses that I would be you know it's it, again not like um, Bob Barbas in DMC where you're telling your friends about it and and stuff like that. These these yeah. are your fairly bog standard fighty monster with a whip kind of yeah. moments. Yeah, on on hard they can kill mm. you in a couple of hits. I and imagine your yeah. magic meters yeah. decrease quite fast. Yeah. Um, but what's really cool about them on hard mode is you really have to learn which attacks are their unblockables and which ones can mm-hmm. be parried because yeah. it, getting that parry in and then either you know hitting them so you get more orbs so you can charge your health back up or just once you've parried them switching on the light magic and then going to town with them to get your health back up is that that is the key it's all about that it's all about making sure you can get that parry in um, whereas on the easier difficulty settings, you can kind of just fudge it a little bit and just dodge and dodge and dodge and get out of the way of every attack. Whereas on hard mode, just dodging out of the way of every attack is actually kind of counterintuitive. You should be looking for that parry and then get the um, yeah. you know, unanswered hits on them. It's so often the case with um, it's something we talk about a lot, and it we, we you know we. We often talk about the difficulty we've we've played games through on because it do, you know it can affect them in in a game like this and you know somebody may have found a game you know repetitive and shallow because they've played it on a lower setting or or they may have had more fun with it, it you know it depends so much on the player and the game. Uh, th- um, this playthrough I'm doing I did for the podcast is the first time I've played it on hard, right. and um, I, I am pleasantly surprised by how mm. how it holds up as an action game. Not not in the early game and not even during most of the levels. But um, but during the boss fights, definitely. Um, and um, one thing that it has brought out of the combat is the need to use those sub-weapons extensively. Yeah. I mean, I played yeah. through it originally without using the smart bomb, the, um, ah. the purple crystal, once. I just didn't need to use it. No. Um, whereas in this, like, there's there's been a few fights with those spectres, you know, the ones that can, like, blink out of existence and come back and jab you straight yeah and away. they hit you take your half half your health yeah and there's fights with like three of those that I was just dying over and over and over at because I just couldn't get my parry timing down so in the end I just cracked one of those crystals and one shotted a lot of them so like um, <laughs> yeah. I, I have found that like it, it has opened up the combat more by playing on a harder difficulty if anyone listening fancies themselves as an action I'm game I'm sure they fan. do yeah 
I'm sure they do. Um, yeah, I'd kind of forgotten. Uh, I, similarly, I, I often forgot to use the, the, the Golden Axe-style smart bomb attack, um, which invokes a, a cutscene with a hideous, uh, large-breasted freak. Um, <laughs> looks and, straight uh, out of Clive Barker's Jericho, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it was unused yeah. from it. Um, a weird mm-hmm. thing about that I've noticed as well is it's actually an FMV sequence. It's, it's yes, video. it is, yeah. You, like, yeah. And, and, and it's the same every time to the point where like yes. every, the second and third time I, use it, I just press start and it brings yeah. up the skip cutscene menu. Yes, it's particularly noticeable on PC because the FMV is rougher than the in-game graphics in that way. Um, but yes, uh, and the fact that every time you fight a new monster you get uh you get a breakdown of which uh weapons it's um uh, are vulnerable it's vulnerable to um there is a yeah there is a little more going on there than than perhaps um it's easy to give it credit for as as a simple a simple hack and slash button basher but it works on two uh, levels <laughs> yeah absolutely lots, lots, yeah. lots to like <laughs> yeah uh so I think we've yeah we've picked apart the the bits and bobs, but yes, that ending. Um, as I say, we did a spoiler warning, warning earlier, um, but this cutscene became quite famous because it, it basically because it's got a twist in the FMV, I suppose, in that um, because of uh, how it goes on. So um, we we find uh, Zobek, who uh, we believed we'd sort of um, kicked in basically towards the end of the game before fighting. Um, Satan and if you played the Ultimate Edition or the DLC um, the Forgotten One as well but Zobek turns up um, looking in a in a gothic cathedral for uh, Gabriel but Gabriel is now vampiric mm. yes uh, and not only that but it's the present day mm. <laughs> I, I've got to say that did blow my mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it, just worth noting this um, from a, again Castlevania fan perspective. Uh, the Castlevania yeah. games are set all over the various timelines, and they've always yes. flirted with present day or like more modern yes. settings. Castlevania '64 yeah. being one of them with the motorbikes, <laughs> um, the Mega Drive Bloodlines being set sort of during World War One, I, I think, and one of the Portrait um, of Ruin DS ones being set kind yes. of future. But it, it mm. isn't really when you look at it. Whereas Laws of Shadow is uh, is very early in the in the lineage, mm. isn't it? In te- is ten ten something, yes. ten forty something, something like that. Well, this mm. is it. Um, th- th- it's it's always been this like thing that the fanboy wants to see. So when that window smashes and it's you know a modern <laughs> city, there was like a moment of oh my god, yep. the sequel's going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm. Yeah. Not knowing there was going to be a sequel, obviously, as well. It was just like, come on, this has got to happen. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're not on to the, uh, the, the DLC just yet. We will be very shortly. Um, but at this point, having seen the standard ending of the standard game, if you've only, if you, you know, if, if you, if you played it before the DLC came out or whatever, um, you could be confused as to what's gone on because it, the, the segue between the natural end of the game and this uh, post credit sequence is not really explained at this stage, is it? No, it's, it's left ambiguous. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's obviously hinted at that like, his actions are going to cause right. him to basically become not just a vampire, but become Dracula. You know, um, mm. it's, it's, yeah. it's very heavily hinted at. I mean, we'll get onto the DLC in a minute, but I'm of the school of thought that the DLC didn't need to exist. I was quite happy with yes. how it went. 
Oh, let's do that thing then. Yeah, so I played these uh, straight after because they were already there as part of the PC version, which, as I say, you can pick up very cheap a lot of the time on on Steam. Um, You'll certainly get your value for money. But yes, Reverie and Resurrection, which were both released towards the end of the same year, I think, that the game came out originally. Um, The first one is... uh, It kind of tells the next part of the story, um, sort of... uh, it's it's got that thing a bit like the enslaved DLC where the cutscenes are now rendered in 2D animation quite stylish but you can tell that obviously the, the budget has uh, is not there or the time um, and so you are teamed up with uh, Laura the vampire girl who you met earlier in the game and um, she kind of seals your fate there's a lot of puzzles in this DLC it's more puzzle heavy it's like that's its, yeah. that's its theme the first one's themed yeah. around puzzles and the second one's themed around a bit more combat. Yeah. Um, I quite enjoyed the puzzles again. Again, I thought the puzzles were actually quite well designed in this. Um, I, I, I mused for a while over the one where you're punching the pillar through the coloured portals. Um, but, uh, again, the story stuff, I, I, you know, there, there seemed to be some quite significant stuff happening for, for fans that perhaps shouldn't have been locked away in DLC. Mm-hmm. Um just regarding the DLC, by the way, I don't know whether you've got this noted down, but um, I did because I wasn't a fan of the DLC, so I did some looking mm. up. Because uh, the only time I yeah. played the DLC was when it came out. I picked up both of them. It was very expensive on the Xbox 360. Um, uh, I'm, right. I'm yet to play them on the P- on the PC version because they're right at the end mm. of the game. But um, yeah. I, I found some quotes from Dave Cox about okay. the um, the DLC, and I will read them out. Yeah. He says. We never planned to do DLC, so we ended up doing DLC <laughs> after the fact, and in hindsight, this was a mistake. It was rushed, right. we had to rush it to market. The problem was that the game's success actually caught everyone at Konami by surprise. It caught senior management by surprise, and they were desperate for us to do DLC. And when you have success, there's pressure for you to do something else to market very quickly, and I think it was wrong of us to do that. Uh, such a shame, because that, that makes it canon now for this... Uh... Mm. the story like like that that's how he becomes dracula and it's a really kind of boring way of him becoming dracula yeah um but now they have to follow through on that and keep that as part of the story so that's a bummer mm. um and now that i mean I, I quite enjoyed reverie's play because as i say i'd enjoyed the puzzles i think whoever designs their puzzles at mercury steam is a good puzzle designer um resurrection i didn't enjoy a bit of one bit really um it had that platforming section that i mentioned it had some stealth clambering um <laughs> and then a really you know extended boss fight with um that asked you to do kind of moves that you'd never had to do at any point up to that you know sort of aerial combat and in a way you'd think fair enough but by that point I was just like can I just can I just see the end please <laughs> uh, so I, I, I yeah I, I played it but um, fortunately uh, like many of the bosses in Lords of Shadow uh, and fair play to Mercury Steam there are checkpoints within bosses hmm. which is uh, a modern uh, nicety but one that I wholeheartedly approve of all right then. Before we do our own summaries, uh, let's go through these uh, five quintet of three-word reviews. Starting with Andy. Daniel Gomes, or Gomez says needs better camera. Jello Triafra says generation's greatest graphics. Ryan Hammond says jump feels terrible. Jerome McIntosh says needless shaky camera. And finally, Daniel Owen says gorgeous gothic action. Gorgeous and gothic indeed. 
So our summaries then, um, starting with Sean O'Brien. So I didn't expect to like Lords of Shadow uh, as much as I did. Um, I know it's too long and the combat system isn't really as deep as it maybe should be, but I ended up really liking all the amazing visuals and the rousing score and the cheesy story, the hammy voice acting, all that stuff. I just kind of let all that stuff wash over me and just ended up having a good time with it. Um, I know it's not the deepest game in any way, but that's okay. Not every game needs to be. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to Lords of Shadow 2. I hope they can improve on um, the things that they missed on in the, this one. And So, yeah, roll on Lords of Shadow 2. Um, well, I'm afraid I'm probably the most negative of the assembled panel on this, but I'm not nearly as negative as some people who I've spoken to coming into this. Um, it should be said that there definitely are people out there who really didn't get on with this game. Um, and I can I can sympathise to a point. Um, the things I liked about it, uh, I did enjoy high production values, the epic vistas, uh, the the sumptuous score... Um, did have some, you know, some fun sequences. Sometimes the skirmishes were fun, particularly in the latter half of the game, which came way too late. Um, and some nice puzzles and some spectacular bosses. And overall, I've, when we've talked about games of a similar nature before, I, you know, I can get into that that feeling of an undemanding fantasy romp. Like I don't take games like this hugely seriously, but I don't think they're supposed to be taken that seriously. It is the you know, lower brain entertainment of just immersing in a in a in a pretty fantasy world and and having some fun and doing some crazy stuff. Um, but the negatives for me, it does feel like a, a brisk, entertaining romp stretched to breaking point over twenty something hours. I played for twenty five hours, including the DLC and a bit of uh, sort of new game plus revisiting chapters on different difficulty levels and, and unlocking stuff. Um, and at that point, even though I was thinking, oh, I could I could try to hundred percent some of these levels a lot of my brain was thinking you've played way too much of this game already and some of these sequences are not going to be fun to do um, more than once not not this soon after doing them the first time um, the game is repetitive at points and, and wildly derivative but that's not necessarily a terrible thing in itself but um, weak storytelling and performance is for me a, more of a problem shallow combat often against mostly some uninteresting foes with exceptions and so something we haven't mentioned at any stage there are some pretty uh, tired QTEs and button bashing um, regards to finishing monsters off and again you know if, if you don't like comparisons to God of War don't make the way you kill monsters exactly the same as in God of War but overall um, I ended up feeling more positively about the game than I did for, say, the first sort of seven or eight hours of it, um, and then a bit more negative again when I played the final part of DLC. Um, overall, I'd say this is a game that's essential for fans of Darksiders, for fans of um, the God of War games, and for Castlevania fans. Less essential for everyone else, but um, but yes, an enjoyable romp overall, despite some issues. Josh? Um, this is a game that, despite a lot of its problems that I'm well aware of there, I ended up really loving. I, I kind of compared this game with um, Deus Ex Human Revolution in that I think both those games 
are filled with problems but because the things I like about those games kind of really stand out to me and are things I really appreciate personally um, I'm able to kind of ignore those problems um, the visuals are the thing that that really strike me about this game it just every shot feels expertly composed just the art involved in every scene every monster every uh, waterfall every mountain it just it's a really pretty game um are there better versions of this you know type of game out there absolutely i mean th- this game came out the year bayonetta came out and if um, you know if you have the choice go for bayonetta absolutely but if you're a fan of this genre and you're looking for something that's not too complex but is filled with spectacle i i would highly recommend it thanks josh finally our special castlevania guest Andy Hamilton. Um, just to echo the start of what Sean said, I didn't expect to like Castlevania <laughs> Lords of Shadow mm. um, for somewhat different reasons. Um, it looked like it was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, taking quote-unquote my precious Castlevania um, and doing things of it that made it look like a generic action game rather than the sort of gothic fantasy romp I wanted from it. Um, and it turns out they hadn't done that. Um, they had turned it into like a, a fresh and um you know new take on sort of the classic action side of things and improved vastly on the PS2 games that I actually enjoyed quite a lot mm. um i've you know obviously it's an amazing looking game you know the, the fact that like you know a few people do seem to say it's the best of generation graphically is um you know sort of speaks for itself it's you know, it's a fantastic looking adventure um but ultimately lord of shadow to me is it, it it was really cool to see um a, a series that's always been you know close to you know me um but never really hit the mainstream kind of you know go big for once um which looks mm. like it's going to capitalize on with Lords of Shadow 2 you know it looks like it and um it, it turns out Lords of Shadow became the biggest selling Castlevania game to date so you know it it was cool to see you know something that I've always loved resonate on a larger scale um yeah it's um I I I I I was surprised how much I enjoyed it and I was surprised how much of a Castlevania game it is despite all my fears Lovely stuff. Uh, Andy, you are returning, I believe, fairly soon this time for issue 119, I think it is, um, the Manhunt duology. Because if there's one other thing Um, I like that's not Castlevania, it's killing. So, (laughs) In a really, yeah, in the most appalling fashion possible. I'm not on that podcast. I've not not completed either of those games. But, um, yeah, it'd be great to have you back on. Until then, where can people find Um, you? You can find me on Twitter at AndyHero. I spell my name like an idiot. So it's A-N-D-I-H-E-R-O. Um, I am obviously on the Midnight Resistance podcast. You can find us at midnightresistance.co.uk or at Midnight Resist on Twitter. If you like slightly overweight bearded men talking about video games, you should definitely <laughs> check us out. I think they do. I think they must do. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, it just remains for me to thank Josh, Sean 
and Andy again. I've been Leon Cox. Next time, in issue 116, Darren Gargett will be your host, and he and the panel will be talking about the intriguingly twisted Binding of Isaac. Until then, some epicness. Goodbye. <laughs>